Um, am I on? I can't hear it. There we go. I think that's it. There we go. All right. Thank you. Um, we are in Romans chapter 15 this morning, so uh, if you are able, if you will join with me in standing for the reading of God's Word in Romans 15, we'll be looking at verses 30 through 33. Paul writes these words to the church in Rome, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we... uh, come to this time of uh, the hearing of your word. Lord, we pray that uh, as you have given us this word through the power of your Holy Spirit at work in Paul's life, we pray that you will work that power in our hearts and in our minds this morning as we read and reflect on these words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I heard the story this week of of a young man named John who was a college student taking a major exam in one of his courses. The exam was uh, two hours long, and at the end of the exam, the teacher called for the students to come forward and turn them in. But as, just as they were getting up, the professor uh, remind, told the students to sit back down as he needed them each to sign a form that indicated they hadn't received any outside help in completing their exam. John was a bit confused, and he started feeling guilty. So he waited until all the other students had filed out, filled out their form and signed them and turned them in to the professor. And uh, then he went forward to the professor, and he made this confession. Professor, I'm, I'm a Christian, and last night I prayed for, with fervor that the Lord would help me with this exam today so I don't believe I can honestly sign that form. Well, the professor turned to him and he said, John, let me see your exam for a moment. He uh, looked through the exam and turned to John and said, you know, I really don't see a problem because God has not answered your prayer. (laughs) So here is the question. Does God answer all our prayers? This is now the seventh in our series, and we, uh, we've been looking at multiple aspects of biblical prayers as modeled primarily by the Apostle Paul, but then also in the Gospel of Luke. You know, whether we study the prayers of Moses or Paul or Peter or John, they're ultimately addressed to the same God. But they also display some remarkable differences and similarities. They have similarities in the things that they emphasize, in their tone, in the kinds of arguments they make. For instance, just like John and Peter 
Paul always keeps in mind the ultimate end of history and the return of Jesus Christ and the coming of the new heaven and the new earth when he prays. Peter uh, writes this way in his first letter, The the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. See, while prayers of Paul have a lot of similarities, there's also a freshness to the prayers because they're always tied to the new and fresh things for which he gives thanks. Now, we've only scratched the surface of all there is to learn about prayer, and we've got one more Sunday to look at this. But, uh, you know, we haven't looked at the variety of the Psalms filled with hope and love and faith, but also with fear and rage and doubt and despair, betrayal and loneliness. But uh, I'd like us to look at something a little different this Sunday. See, here Paul isn't modeling how he prays, but asking for prayer for himself and for his ministry. And there are certain things that, are, that we learn about prayer from what he asks for. So if, you're, uh, if you are one who likes to keep notes, I've included this outline in your bulletin. And uh, let me give you the first point here. Point one on your outline is there is an urgency to prayer, and we need to take prayer seriously and make it a priority. See, Paul says, I urge you to join me by praying to God for me. This is a strong, passionate language. He says, I urge you, brothers, as he reminds them of how God has united them together in one familial body. This is the same language he just used three chapters before in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He said there, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, uh, the strongest element of the Greek here is the next one. He says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me by praying to God for me. Basically, he's saying something like this. If you truly love and trust Jesus, our Messiah, as Lord, I plead with you in his name to pray for me. If you believe, him, believe in him, if you've been called by him, if you have submitted your life to him, if you have tasted of his saving goodness and have a longing to see his kingdom grow, then I beg you to pray for me and my ministry. If you've known the love of the Holy Spirit that fills us and empowers us, then demonstrate your knowledge of that love by interceding for me. If the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, then you must know how to love, and if you love me, how can you not be praying for me? Your prayers reflect how well you understand who Jesus truly is. This is a very powerful and personal plea. And so I ask you to remember that there is an urgency to prayer. See, we take it much too casually, but prayer is vitally important to the health and well-being of God's people. So I ask you to pray 
to take prayer seriously and make prayer a priority. There's another key aspect to this appeal for prayer, and, and it's point two on your outline. To pray is to struggle and wrestle. Paula writes these words, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. To join me in my struggle, by the way, is one word in the Greek, a verb that's used only here in the New Testament, but other forms of that word are used in connection with prayer. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells them this about a certain man named Epaphras. He says, He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. In fact, earlier in that letter, he wrote about his own prayer life. He said, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. See, Prayer is a part of the Christian struggle. The term to struggle here in the Greek is often used in the context of continuous effort of an athlete so that he or she can compete at a very high level. See, Paul understands praying as, in part, including struggle, disciplined, often agonizing work against the dark powers of evil that are at work in our world. And when we pray in this way, we are joining others in the struggle. So, uh, which brings me to point three on your outline. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You might recognize that this comes from Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul warns us that we need to put on the whole armor of God, as he puts it, if we are to stand against the devil's schemes. Then, after telling us to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and the rest, he adds this, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. See, now, uh, let me say something about this. Most of us in our modern Western world don't believe in an evil spiritual realm anymore. Even many Christians don't believe in spiritual warfare. But uh, our world is now changing. Most cities in America today have witches' covens. The occult is on the rise, and Satan and his allies are at work in our neighborhoods. The biblical reality is that there is a spiritual battle going on. And we join in this struggle, most especially through prayer. Our primary calling as ambassadors of Jesus isn't to impress people with intellectual arguments or with fine music and great emotional power, though the Lord does often use those methods. 
but rather the need is a new birth. That's what's required. God's work of conversion and transformation. And Satan stands against this. For our struggle, as Paul puts it, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But it is ultimately Jesus, the victor over death and the devil, who is on our side. Let me uh, give you some examples. I... uh, used to find the book of Revelation extremely puzzling, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, if you will. But uh, after decades of study of this book, looking at uh, all the different ways this book has been interpreted, I've come to love and appreciate the book more and more. And it's helped me to understand what it means to be in a spiritual battle and what prayer means in that context. And by the way, the book of Revelation is most often quoted and loved and beloved by Christians under persecution throughout history and throughout the world. Now let me uh, take you to an especially puzzling chapter. In uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, we're presented with the picture of the spiritual reality of Jesus being given to us at just the right time. And then in verse 7 we get these words, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now let me uh, point out a couple of things. A dragon or leviathan is common Old Testament symbolism for everything that opposes God. A dragon or leviathan is identified with Egypt in Psalm 74 because of their enslavement and oppression of God's people. A leviathan or dragon is identified with Assyria and Babylon in the exilic period in Isaiah 27. It's also equivalent with Pharaoh. And let me read from you Ezekiel chapter 29, beginning with verse 3. Speak to him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great leviathan or dragon lying among your streams. You say the Nile belongs to me. I made it for myself. So let me suggest that behind All of them is Satan himself. Let me give you another example. Remember uh, in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember, he got all kinds of answers, but then Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then it's at that point that Jesus tells him that that answer was given to him by God. And then uh, we're told that Jesus goes on from that time forward to describe to them how he, the Messiah, must suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. It's at that point that Peter jumps in 
and thinking that, you know, he'd scored some uh, really good brownie points with Jesus before, he wants to score some more points. And we read in verses 22 and 23, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turns and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So let me uh, say a couple things here. Jesus doesn't all of a sudden make an identity mistake. And it's not even that Peter has all of a sudden been possessed by Satan. You see, what Jesus understands is that behind Peter's exclamation is the seductive power of Satan himself. Just as behind the evil of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Pharaoh is Satan, the beast. The seductions of the powers of this world that seek to draw us away from the truths of God's Word. The seductions that cause us to compromise our faith, compromise our convictions, is Satan himself. He's described in the book of Revelation as having seven heads, which symbolically points to his power at work all over the world. And he is also described as having ten horns, symbolism used to describe the beast of Daniel 7 as well, indicating that his work is most often directed through the halls of worldly governments. See, the dragon, Satan, is determined to destroy the Messiah, but he failed in that. So now his purpose is to destroy the works of faithful, confessing people of God. See, the reality is as Christians, we are strangers in this world. This is not our home. We have been bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves, and this world is not our home. And we need to understand that we are biblically described as being in this time in the desert of testing. And we need to daily, hourly seek the Lord. We tend to have a difficult time dealing with this today. We want to be comfortable with this world. We want all the comforts that are afforded to us. And so it's until we come to realize that this world is not my home, we will struggle to seek God's kingdom first. Until we realize that we are travelers and strangers and temporary residents, We will struggle to live as God desires us to live. Oh, we'll we'll do some good things to make ourselves feel better and assuage our guilt, but not to glorify God. We Western Christians have enjoyed the comforts and luxuries of life to the point that we have forgotten where our true home is. We've forgotten the Great Commission to make disciples because we've forgotten our true homes. This is the deception of the principalities and powers of this world. And we need to recognize this in our daily prayer lives as we struggle together in prayer daily for ourselves, for one another, and especially for our Christian leaders. Which brings me to point four on your outline. 
pray that our Christian leaders might be rescued from the opposition of outsiders who try to destroy their ministry. Do you see this? Paul writes, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. See, Paul was on his way to Judea carrying plenty of money collected from churches in Macedonia and Achaia as a gift to the believers in Jerusalem. But he knew he might not be accepted there, even despite the gift. Why? Well, many of the Jews in Jerusalem saw him as a turncoat. They saw him as dangerous to the Hebrew faith and to the Hebrew identity. And so Paul's language here is quite strong. What the NIV translates as unbelievers in Judea, in the Greek is better understood as the disobedient or rebels in Judea. They had willfully and rebelliously rejected God's ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ. And so Paul asks for prayer that he might be rescued from them as they were actively and deceptively working to destroy what God was doing. See, each time we hear about or read about faithful congregations and leaders being oppressed, what we need to do is pray. Churches and Christian leaders are often the targets of media attacks or government antichrist attacks, governments that pass laws to harass, limit, and possibly even destroy Christian ministry. And that is what's going on very severely in China today. So I'm especially asking for you to pray for the pastor that the Lord will be calling to Parkway in the near future. We need to each be praying for him, asking the Lord to prepare him. And we together, even now, need to be wrestling against the principalities and powers that would seek to upend the ministry that the Lord is preparing for him here at Parkway. And we need to regularly remind one another of this vitally urgent task. You see, the Lord even now is preparing the person He desires to lead Parkway into the next stage of outreach and ministry in this community. And I'm fully convinced that the Lord is leading this congregation to vital ministry in this community. We're planning outreach ministries even now, such as divorce care. We're planning evangelism ministries as, such as Christianity Explored, which works through the Gospel of Mark to present the Gospel to non-believers. And every one of us here at Parkway has a vital role to play in this. This is, and that is to regularly and constantly pray. To wrestle against the forces that might seek to upend that future ministry. And once your new pastor is called here, you'll need to continue to pray for him, as I will be doing. Which brings me to point five on your outline. Pray that God might make the ministry of faithful, Christ-centered leaders embraced among God's people. There are lots of Christian leaders whose ministries have been upturned because their ministry is not acceptable to some whom they seek to serve. 
It's often by people who have decided that one or two non-essential issues are enough to resist or even destroy someone's ministry. Things like homeschooling versus public schools, King James Version only, a particular style of music and worship wars, a certain view of prophecy or how to baptize. Now, these are important issues. But when we raise them to the level of essential, and when we make them the criteria by which we judge the ministry of others, it often becomes a destructive problem. And so we need to pray. Pray that our Lord will send under-shepherds to our churches who are wise, Christ-centered, godly, spiritual, disciplined, mature, prayerful, faithful to God's inerrant word. We need to pray that their ministry will truly be acceptable to God's people. See, the teaching elders of our presbytery and our larger denomination need those prayers. The ruling elders of our presbytery and our ruling elders here at Parkway need those prayers. The pastors and under-shepherds of the congregations in this community need your prayers. Our missionaries need your prayers. Which brings me to point six on your outline. Pray for ever-growing opportunities to minister more widely and for revitalization among God's people. And then pray for a larger vision. Pray for a larger vision. See, look at what Paul writes here. Pray that I may be rescued from unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Now, by refreshed, Paul isn't just asking that he might get to Rome and have a nice vacation. Paul has already explained that he he desires to preach the gospel in areas where God has not sent anyone. And so his plan is to stop in Rome on his way to Spain, where he hopes to preach the gospel and extend his ministry. And so being refreshed in Rome is meant to prepare him to minister there in Rome and beyond to Spain. So he's asking God for enough grace to get through whatever is being dealt with at the present, but also seeking where God is going next. The desire to reach out, to reach out beyond, to expand. See, Paul is a man who dreams dreams and who envisions ministering to new needs and seeking opportunities. And this is vital, vitally tied closely to prayer. Now, uh, for those of you who have scheduled and have met with me, I've uh, asked you what opportunities are before us here at Parkway. Why? Because I'm looking for Christ's answers to those prayers. That we together might be gripped by the needs of our, in our community and seek to reach others in the power of the Holy Spirit who's at work among us. See, it should encourage us to pray big prayers. Not only that the Lord would bring solutions to the issues that we are facing today as God's people at Parkway, 
But this also should encourage us to pray for renewal, to pray for the next stage of ministry, to look at expansion, reaching out more and more in our communities and beyond. See, if we don't pray for this, we will never work for it. See, ultimately, this kind of prayer is a concern for the very gospel itself, to the extension of a needy world. E.M. Bounds once uh, wrote this. One of the uh, constitutional enforcements of the gospel is prayer. Without prayer, the gospel can neither be preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life. And for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out. And his work cannot progress without him. See, Paul doesn't just want his service to be acceptable to God's people in Jerusalem or be tolerated by the Jews there so that life might be a little easier and so that his reputation will be enhanced in the Roman Empire. No. He desires these things so that he can get on to the next phase of making disciples. See, his passion is for the gospel and for people. And he is 100% committed to furthering the gospel. This is what drives him to his knees. And he wants us to be driven to our knees daily with the same passion. Which uh, now brings me to the final point. Point seven. Which is what I started with my, with my humorous illustrations at the beginning of the sermon. When God doesn't answer your prayers. You see, we know how things work out for Paul from the book of Acts. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem because of the unbelievers in Judea. And as far as we know, he never got to Spain. After two years of imprisonment in Caesarea and a hearing before the corrupt court, he appeals to Caesar and then is shipped off to Rome. And on the way, he experiences his fourth shipwreck. Now, I don't believe these are the results that Paul envisioned when he asked for prayer. So some of Paul's prayers weren't answered in the way that he would have liked. And this is true for us as well. You see, if all our prayers are answered in just the way we would like, if we think we just need to pray the right way, just saying in Jesus' name, or just getting enough people to join us in prayer on Facebook, and we immediately get what we ask for, wouldn't we come to think of, God, of prayer as some kind of magic? That God simply turns into a genie, that we just need to rub the bottle the right way, that's not Christian faith. That's magic, not worship. It's just another power trip. It's not truly giving our lives to the one who gave his life for us. It's superstition, not a deep, personal, and abiding relationship with the living God. The living God who is patient, loving, good, 
and wise. Now, see, God may give us what we ask for. He may make us wait. He may say no. He may give us what we ask for, but in a way that we never could have foreseen. Just like when he gave Paul more grace to deal with the suffering of the thorn in the flesh rather than remove it. There's a wonderful anonymous poem that I think makes my point very well here. And I'd like to close with that. Here's the poem. He asked for strength that he might achieve. He was made weak that he might obey. He asked for health that he might do greater things. He was given infirmity that he might do better things. He asked for riches that he might be happy. He was given poverty that he might be wise. He asked for power that he might have the praise of men. He was given weakness that he might feel the need of God. He asked for all things that he might enjoy life. He was given life that he might enjoy all things. He's received nothing that he asked for, but all that he hoped for. His prayer is answered. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving Lord, you have given and blessed us with so much. You are a faithful, promise-keeping, loving God, loving and active God. You're at work here this morning, and we acknowledge all that. We acknowledge that you answer our prayers, sometimes not in the way we hoped, sometimes not in the way we expected, but you always give us just what we need. So, Lord, it is with grateful hearts that we seek you, that we seek you daily for the needs of our congregation, for the needs of our community, for the needs of Christians around the world. And we know that you answer those prayers, often in ways that we don't understand, but you do answer those prayers. Gracious and loving Lord, what a, what a joy it is to be able to envision what you desire in our community and how you desire us to be both now and in the future. And so, Lord, we join in the struggle. We join in the struggle against the worldly powers. We join in the struggle as we seek your will to be done here at Parkway. 
we join in the struggle as we seek uh, your future leadership here and what you might desire for our community. Thank you, faithful Lord, for your amazing blessings and your love in our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you now to stand for our closing song.